You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so um, let me just kind of catch us up in Acts, because if you've been here the last few weeks, what you know is that we've kind of really spent the majority of our time just in the first four chapters, and now we're kind of jumping forward um, to Acts chapter 8. And so let me just kind of tell you what's happened, right? Again, if this is the sequel to Jesus' life, right? Jesus has come, he's lived his perfect life, he's died a substitutionary death on behalf of his followers, and now he has risen in victory over Satan, over sin, and over death, right? And he told, he told his followers at that time this one simple thing, which was that there would come, right, a, a, a counselor, a power, a spirit, right, that would come and would empower his people not only to, to follow him, right, but also to make him known, okay? And so that's, that's what the, the chronicling of, of Acts really is. And in chapter 2, really through chapter 4, where we've spent the majority of our time, we've seen the spirit empower the church, this new people, right, with all kinds of different characteristics that maybe weren't there before in order that he might be made known. And what we see is that Time and time again, as this people live together, right, with the gospel at the heart of their identity, that people come to know Jesus. And so it tells us regularly throughout those first couple of chapters that thousands, literally thousands, were added day by day to this people, to this new, um, to this new people. And so then in Acts chapter 6, the church grows to such a degree that, that really it's beyond like the managerial scope of the 12 apostles, right? So it's 12 guys and now you've got literally, n- no exaggeration, tens of thousands of Christians who need to be overseen, who need to be cared for, right? Who need to be loved, who need to be in sh- it, like shepherded, really. And what we see is that in that moment, right, the apostles get together and they lay hands on, on seven men as deacons of the church to share sort of in, in the caring for and the service of this, this new people, this growing people. And then in Acts chapter 7, um, a, a really significant moment in this, in this book happens, right? And I mean, it's filled with significant moments, but this one is huge. In that, up until chapter 7, essentially, all of the action has taken place in Jerusalem, Okay, so it's, it's, it's been in, in, in the confines of that like regional location. And what happens in chapter 7 is that we see Stephen martyred. Now Stephen is um, uh, really the, the first accounted for Christian um, that is martyred for his faith, right? Stephen is falsely accused. He is brought before a council. And before that council, he testifies with great power to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He explains it fully, very clearly. And in response to that, it tells us that the people were enraged and that they then stoned him, right? And why that is significant is because really it's from that moment that we see sort of this springboard effect where the people of God are scattered out of Jerusalem and Acts chapter 8 is is kind of the beginning of that. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1, here's what we see. A man named Saul, who we will soon know as Paul, says this, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, the execution of, of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4, skip down, it says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, 
Philip was one of those guys. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So, so this is Philip, right? This is, this is Philip. This is the guy that, through verses 26 through 40, we are now observing in a moment uh, where, where he's essentially evangelizing, right? Now, this is significant for, for a few reasons. Um, one, I think we are going to see here in just the life and example of Philip what it looks like for us, right, as the people of God to be faithful evangelists of the gospel of God, right? And so we're just going to observe some, some key things from Philip in that moment. And, and there's really three of them, and I'll just list them right now. One, we're going to see that Philip was in touch with the Spirit. Two, we're going to see that Philip is in touch with the gospel. And then three, we're going to see that Philip is in touch with people, right? And so I want to uh, observe those three things uh, this morning. Verses 26 through 29 show us or reveal to us how Philip is just in touch with the Spirit. 26 says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now here's the thing. Some of us might say, all right, there's, there's really nothing special about what's taking, uh, taking place with Philip here, and that, that it's really not such a strange act of obedience when an angel comes before you and tells you to do something, right? Like, I mean, if this morning, let's just say an, an angel were to show up while you're looking in the mirror, you know, getting ready for, for, for gathering with the saints this morning and told you to do something else, you would do probably one of two things. You would either, A, obey that angel, or two, you would go get a CAT scan, right? W- one of those two things would happen. And so in this moment, what we see really is, is just Philip kind of obeying something that's supernatural, something that's compelling in nature, right? Like, like there's, there's some oomph behind this. And yet this is significant because what the Spirit is doing in Philip in this moment is something that I think was probably not only counterintuitive for him, but is even counterintuitive for us this morning. So let, let me fill in the gaps here between really verses 6 and verses 26 in chapter 8. Because it's important for us to understand really what, what Philip has just recently experienced, right? So Philip, he's, he's part of just a, a normal guy, right? He's a, he's a regular guy in, in the church belonging to the people of God. All of a sudden, Stephen Stone, everybody kind of scatters out, right? Saul is persecuting the church in Jerusalem. Philip ends up in Samaria, and guess what? He continues to preach the gospel. And guess what? In that moment, he... He happens to be particularly successful in that many who hear him come to faith, but not only many, but even the culturally significant people of that town come to faith. It tells us about a man named Simon who many people revered because he was capable with sort of with magic, essentially. And even though Simon comes to confront Philip, Philip preaches the gospel and even Simon becomes a Christian, right? And so 
Philip finds himself in Samaria. He finds himself in this cosmopolitan place, in this town, in this city, where there is great fruit in ministry. Right? Like exciting things are happening in the church in Samaria at this point. And it's in that moment that God says, I know there's the 99, but I'm sending you to the one. I know there's the city, but I'm sending you to the desert. Philip is in touch with the Spirit to the degree that he allows the Spirit to lead him away from the most fruitful ministry that he had ever experienced. And so what we see here is that that for Philip, being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, he values faithfulness more than he values fruitfulness. That's super significant for us because I think just as uh, sort of as a, uh, an American cultural Christianity, like we, we really enjoy kind of being at the epicenter of things, don't we? Like we like walking into rooms on Sunday where it's exciting and where it's vibrant, where there's new people, where there's, where there's kind of, you know, there's some action, some anticipation, some, some movement, right? And yet it's, it, it, it's in precisely that place that Philip finds himself, and it's in precisely that moment that God says, I'm sending you elsewhere. And Philip is ready to heed the Spirit in that, in the many ways that the Spirit reveals himself, whether through an angel or whether through an audible voice telling him, go to that chariot, or whether it's through a subjective prompting by which he will soon and shortly explain the gospel, right? Philip is in touch with the Spirit. Now, Philip is also in touch with the gospel, right? Verses 30 through 35 read like this. So Philip ran to him in obedience to the Spirit, right? Ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch, and this eunuch is reading aloud Isaiah chapter 53, which if you know Isaiah or you have some familiarity with the Bible, you know that that Philip is being teed up here, right? Isaiah 53 might be one of the most clear, overt references to Jesus in the Old Testament in terms of his ministry, in terms of what he would come to do, in terms of what he would accomplish, in terms of what he would look like, right? That there would be no glory upon him, that man would behold him, right? That he would be struck down, that he would bear our transgressions, right? So Philip hears the eunuch reading this portion of Scripture, reading this portion of Isaiah, and here's what I mean when I say that Philip was in touch with the gospel. Philip, in that moment, upon hearing that text read, which, just so you know, like copies of the Bible at that time were not easy to come by, right? 
So Philip's probably not carrying his King James Version, right? Like, okay, anyway. Um, But he's able, right? He's able in that moment from a portion of Scripture to explain who Jesus is and what what he's done. He's in touch with the the gospel to to the degree that he knows God's word and he knows how to rightly apply it according to and it in allegiance to Jesus, right? He sees Jesus as the key, the fulcrum upon which the entire history and story of Scripture turns. In fact, this situation is so much like another situation, so much like another situation really um, that we find Jesus in, in the prequel to this book written by Luke, right? Turn to Luke um, chapter 24. I just, I want us to see how these two, how these two situations mirror themselves really. Let me give you some context on Luke 24, right? Luke being an account of Jesus's life. This is at the very end of that account, right? So Jesus has lived his perfect life. He has died the sacrificial death on behalf of those who would follow him. He has risen now in victory over Satan's sin and death, and he is walking along the road. And he hears these two men talking to one another, and it's an interesting conversation because it's about him. It's about Jesus. And they're talking, and they're kind of going back and forth, and and what they're saying is, man, we, we really thought this Jesus was the Messiah. We really thought that he was the sent one of God. We really thought that he was our freedom, our liberation, our hope, our joy, and yet He's dead. So I guess we're still waiting. Right? That's the conversation that, that they're having. We thought it was him, but surely it's not. The grave over there proves it. And of course, Jesus <laughs> sort of walks up behind him. He asks them what they are talking about. They share that same story with him. And this is his response to them in verse 25. And he said to them, that being Jesus, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right, so in this moment, much like the moment with Philip, we see Jesus, God himself, in the flesh using the spoken word and the scriptures to expand his kingdom. And Philip, much like his Savior, follows his example and through the Spirit-empowered word and the scriptures uses the gospel fluently, capably in that moment. Right? He, he was ready He was prepared. He knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus had come to do. He knew how that was tied into all of what the scriptures told us that history was moving towards and and for. He was in touch with the gospel. And finally, Philip was in touch with people as he evangelized, right? Here's the thing. It, It does very little good for us as a people to be in touch with the Spirit and with the Word if we are not also in touch with people. Right? If Philip had not loved with Christ's love, he would never have reached across the substantial barriers between him and the people to whom he was witnessing. Not only in Samaria, but also in this 
one isolated moment with the Ethiopian eunuch, who is not only ostracized for his, his heritage, right, not being from Israel, not being an Israelite, but was also outcast in the sense that he had a physical malady that, 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 that would keep him removed from this people. And then even down to the color of his skin and that he's wholly different. He's from Ethiopia. He's African. And up until this point, the kingdom of God had been comprised of a very specific group of people. And yet in this moment, by the guiding of the Spirit and through a knowledge of the gospel, right? Knowing that the gospel is now for Jew and for Gentile. Knowing that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between peoples through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The love of God operating through Philip compels him to the most distant and the most different. The same redemption that compelled Jesus to, to cross the borders between heaven and earth to save his people, is now the same redemption that compels Philip to cross the physical and the social borders to see God's people brought to himself. Philip is in touch with the Spirit. He's in touch with the gospel. He's in touch with people. And ultimately what we see that lead to is effective evangelism. Right? I mean, what happens with the eunuch? If we read on, it tells us this, after Philip opened his mouth and told him the good news of Jesus, verse 36 says that as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And of course, we know that at that moment, there's nothing that prevents him from being baptized because in that moment, he has called upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. He has understood now the scriptures in light of their, of their key, which is Jesus. And he, he walks forward now in obedient response and is baptized as an addition now to the kingdom of God as a family member of Philip's by the blood of Jesus. Right? It's effective. Philip being in touch with the Spirit, in touch with the gospel, and in touch with people leads to a, a moment where the gospel is effective for the sake of the kingdom, a moment where the kingdom expands by the faithful evangelism of a regular guy named Philip with an extraordinary God. And so here's the application that I would want us to take from that. Um, the kingdom of God in Montrose, in Houston, and the world will not expand apart from the faithful evangelism of God's people. It just won't. I'm not saying it can't. I'm not saying that God's not capable of doing it a different way, but God has chosen to do it this way. So here's what I would say for us this morning. Um, I think some of us this morning, um, in terms of our evangelism, we need to get in touch with the Spirit. In that the American church is generally what I would call theologically obese. And that we have many resources at our fingertips that, that are quite amazing. <laughs> like, if nothing else, you have Google, right? And don't trust everything that Google pulls up. But, but like, even just beyond the fact that each of us most likely have at least one, if not two, three, four, five copies of the written word of God in our own language. 
Right? We, have, we have these things at our fingertips. We have people who have thought deeply, critically about this. They've exegeted the text. They've looked at history. They've provided their findings for us to read and to discern by the Spirit. Right? So here's the thing. Our knowledge, right, what we know about the gospel is ultimately ineffective apart from the Spirit because it's the Spirit that ensures our theology. It's the Spirit that applies our theology, right? It's the Spirit that empowers our theology to to be converted from simply a theological idea or conviction to a functional belief that we actually operate out of. The American church has the theological resources that the church in Acts could only have wished for. But the church in Acts has the spirit in a way that the American church desperately needs. Some of us need to get in touch with the gospel. Right? Some of us are still living our parents' faith. Some of us are still living a cultural habit instead of a gospel-transformed life. Right? We as Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, we should have a a faculty, a facility, a love for the gospel if we want to share it effectively. The Christian needs to be be prepared in season, out of season, to share the good news from the scriptures. We should be able to paint God's story with the broad brushes of the creation of man, the fall of man, the redemption afforded to man by Jesus, and the restoration that is coming at his second return. We should be familiar with the Bible, what it says about who we are, who Jesus is, what He's done, what He will do, and so on, because otherwise we will define our reality by what we think rather than what is true. So some of us need to get in touch with the gospel. And then some of us need to just get in touch with people. Now many of us, right, at least philosophically, would not say, that, that like a, a modern monasticism is the most faithful expression of the Christian faith. Here's, here's what I mean by that. <laughs> um, what, I, what I'm saying is that most of us philosophically, if we read the Bible, would not say that the most appropriate way to follow Jesus is to seclude ourselves and to live only a vertical relationship between us and God through the prayer and the reading of His Word. Certainly that comprises some of a faithful experience of of the Christian life. But it's not all of it, right? I mean, if you read any of the New Testament, it's all written to a communal body of people, right? So that, that can't be true. However, many of us functionally think, meaning we we act like we're fully faithful because we hear the word preached once a week and pray semi regularly. And we live these bifurcated lives. We cut ourselves off from the world. We're so afraid of the world's rejection that we've surrounded ourselves with people who think, act, talk, and look like us. But the love of Christ for us in the gospel should compel us to love people who are wholly different from us, comforted by the acceptance that we have in Jesus rather than disturbed by the rejection we experience from them. Some of us need to get in touch with people. Some of us have been Christians our whole lives, and we honestly can't even name someone in our circle of influence that would not consider themselves a follower of Jesus. And if the kingdom of God is to expand, and if sojourn is to be a faithful people, 
on mission with Jesus by the power of the Spirit, then that cannot be the reality. We will never be effective in evangelism if we don't know people who need to be evangelized. Quite simply. Now, my guess is this. Right? I think... I think those are the three things we see exhibited in Philip. I think those are the three things that all of us, right, need some work on, maybe one area, maybe two. But if you're like me, you need help in all three. This was such a convicting sermon for for me to prepare, for me to preach, right? And I'm so grateful for a God who extends grace in in my failing, who uses my imperfection for His perfection, and who loves me always. And really, brothers and sisters, it's in this grace that we should find strength to pursue what pleases Him rather than what pleases us. And so let me just close with this. I know some of us may wonder, like, why... Why does God have to do it this way, right? If God is all-powerful, if He's all-knowing, if He's sovereign, if He can maneuver and do things the way He wants to do them, why this way? The, the, the honest answer to the question is that I, I don't know, other than that's what He's chosen to do. But, just in case we were tempted to believe, that he doesn't know or that he doesn't understand. Let's go back to Luke 24 and understand real quickly what is really taking place here. Because in Luke 24, right, again, we saw Jesus with the words of his mouth and with the patience and with time explaining to these men throughout all the scriptures, those scriptures that concerned himself, which were all of them. There's the thing, right? Let's do some theology exercise, right? Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So, he, so he, he, that's God himself in person, right? His name was Emmanuel, God with us, right? That's, that's Jesus. So he's got, all, he's got all the power of God, right? He has all the knowledge of God. He, he, he's God. And so in that moment, you would think, you would think that in that moment he would be perfectly capable of just pulling like a matrix situation where he just kind of like touches them and it's like, I know jujitsu, you know, or I know the gospel now. Like, let's skip all, let's, let's not waste any time. Like, let's just be very efficient about this. Like, I'm just going to, there it is. You've got it. It's all there. Like, he could, he, he could do that, right? And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus patiently in human language, in words that they could understand, with, with kindness, with grace, with patience, with love, sits and explains for them the gospel of himself. And, and, and you know what happened? I, I mean, it's effective, right? I mean, so it's in that moment we see Jesus like in... in <laughs> In the first like post-resurrection evangelistic scenario, and, and that's what Jesus does. And that's our model. That's what we see Philip doing. It's the same thing. He goes, he listens, he hears the questions of the people. 
Who is this talking about? Is this guy the Messiah? Who, well, I, don't, I don't understand. And Philip patiently, with grace, with kindness, and yet with boldness and with truth, explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is effective for the salvation of this eunuch. So what do we do, right? I mean, what do we do? We, we, we know we need to get in touch with the Spirit. We know we need to get in touch with the gospel. We know we need to get in touch with, with people. But, but if you're like me, like you know that that's, that's not something that I can manufacture, right? I mean, none of those things really are, are things that, that we can just kind of produce, except maybe the getting in touch with people one. And so my hope is this morning that, that simply, right, simply that we would pray together that the Lord would, would get us in touch with those three things, that He would send His Spirit in a real, in a tangible way, in a way where we understand and are led and are guided by His Spirit into these kinds of situations, that, that we would grow in our knowledge of the gospel, right, that, that we would be like that, that Psalm 1 man or woman, Right, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on His law He meditates day and night, knowing that it's in that meditation that He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Right, let's, let's ask the Lord to do that. Let's ask Him to put us in touch with His Spirit, in touch with His gospel, that we might see it in more new and more wondrous ways morning by morning, that His mercies would be new. And then, of course, let's pray that the Lord would give us gospel eyes, gospel lenses through which we see the world, that as we come into contact with the people that we know, the people that we love, that we would love them enough to boldly, gently, kindly speak the truth of the gospel and trust that the Lord will combine both the Spirit, the gospel, and people together in such a way that it is effective and glorious for the expansion of His kingdom. That's what we want. That's why we're here. That's why we sing songs to remind ourselves of that truth. That's why we pray together and ask the Lord for His Spirit to be present among us. That's why we sit underneath the teaching of the Word so that we might have greater faculty by which we share that Word with the world. Make no mistake, this book is not simply how you get right with God on an individual level, although that comprises part of it. But this is the entire trajectory of human history. It is the reality that all peoples in all places in all times find themselves underneath, whether they are ignorant of it or not. And you, by God's grace, have been extended an opportunity not only to enter into this people, enter into this new kingdom that He is establishing, but you've been given the opportunity to extend that same invitation to any and all who would believe. And so the entire trajectory of human history, you have been brought into, you have been brought into the family that, that it will be comprised of at the end of all things. And by His grace, you've got, you've got extra tickets to the show. And you can bring as, as many in as, as the Lord would grace us to have. And so I, I, I just pray that, that that would be, 
who we are, that that would define Sojourn Mantras, that we would be known as a people who are in touch with the Spirit, in touch with the gospel, and in touch with people in such a way that the Lord saves many. Let's pray.